Hey, thanks so much for joining us on the Summit Church Podcast. We want to connect you to a relationship with God and all that He has in store for you. We hope this inspires you, strengthens your faith, and gives you hope to live out your best days now. Enjoy the message. We're in a series called The Power of Hope. Last week, we talked about how to grow hope. And you're either hopeful this morning or hopeless. But you won't find hopeless in God or in Scripture. You're not going to find it. There is no such thing as a hopeless situation. So today we'll talk about what kills hope. What are hope killers? Our text is Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice, Paul doesn't say, may your circumstances fill you with hope. See, things may not look hopeful at the moment, but things are not always what they seem. Some people wait for their circumstances to bring them hope, but some people bring hope to their circumstances. I hope you're one of those people. There's a story in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 13, where 12 scouts are sent out by Moses into the promised land to spy it out and bring back some recommendations. Ten of them return, and they say, we can't go forward. The risk is too great. We're too weak. Things are too dangerous. Gas is going up in price. I don't have a GED. I've been married twice. I don't think we can do it. And two of them come back and say, we can't go back. The opportunity's too good. God's too strong. Things are not what they seem. They're bread for us. Now, which group would be hopeful and which group would be hopeless? Because they're in all churches. Yeah, don't look left or right. All right. Now, they all look at the same thing, same situation, same danger, same opportunity, right? Two of them are filled with hope, and 10 of them had no hope at all. Now, you might have heard of the best two hopers, Joshua and Caleb. They became heroes. And to this day, millenniums later, on the other side of the world, the names Joshua and Caleb remain two of the most popular baby names year after year. On the other hand, even if you're a Bible person, can you name a single one of the 10 hopeless guys? Not a chance in Gehenna. And they're never mentioned in the Bible again. Not ever. Now, they're in the Bible once. I'll tell you their names. See if you know any parent using any of them. Egal, Gadia, Palti, Sethur, Gadiel, Amiliel, Hoshea, Jeul, Nabi, and Shamua. Now, Shamua sounds like what you'd name a killer whale to me, but it's in the Bible. Hope is another name we give to babies. See, nobody names their baby despair. Every child is a natural hoper. See, we're born that way. God made us that way. These babies are convinced they're going to walk, and although they may fall a thousand times, something deep in their soul says, keep trying, keep trying. And they do, and one day it happens, and then mom has another nightmare. They're walking. So then we grow up. And sometimes hope dies. 
and the conviction that my life matters, that I'm going to walk, that this fall is not fatal. So God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. So God has nothing but a hope and a good future for you. Circumstances don't change that, and you have to renew your mind to remember that so you don't become hopeless. Now, this past two-and-a-half-year COVID season was a real hope killer for many people. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe some people lost a home. Definitely some people lost their financial health. Maybe that financial health has been threatened by circumstances, or now you're alone, or you're afraid, or you're filled with resentment. Maybe you're drinking too much, or you're burned out, stressed out, demotivated, discouraged, and you wonder, how do I build damaged hope back up again? Because you can. So we're going to look at a man in the Bible named Elijah. He suffered a collapse of hope that was remarkably quick and incredibly deep. But hope got reborn for him, and it can be for you as well. So I want to say a word about how to read a Bible story as we get into this one. Contrary to a lot of popular opinion, these Bible stories are not like Aesop's fables. The hero of all these stories is God. And God interacts with real, flawed, and almost always morally ambiguous human beings like you and me. And we read about them, not to get virtue principle stories, but to learn about how life with God is gradually revealed on earth. And that's very true in this story. So Elijah, he's a prophet, but he's a human guy. In 1 Kings chapter 18, he is seriously overachieving. You might know this story. He courageously confronts 450 idolatrous prophets of Baal single-handedly. He builds the altar. He digs the trenches. He hauls the wood. He butchers the bull. He prays down fire from heaven. How's your day going so far? All right. He defeats the prophets at great risk to his own life. Then, under inspired preaching, multitudes of those resistant Israelites fall to the ground and worship the one true God. Then Elijah prophesies to his mortal enemy, the wicked king Ahab, that there would be an end to a three-year-long drought or recession. So Elijah climbs up to the top of Mount Carmel. He prays for rain, which miraculously comes. Then Elijah tells the king to ride in his chariot to Jezreel, which is about 15 miles away, and the king does. But we're told Elijah had some burst of spiritual energy, tucking his cloak into his belt. The dude ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. I mean, this man outruns a chariot. This man can't be stopped. He's like Spider-Man, Captain America, Black Panther, Wonder Woman, all rolled into one. This is some dude, right? Hello? <laughs> this is not a spectator sport, folks. Hang with me. All right. Then chapter 19 comes up. And wicked king Ahab tells his old wicked wife, Jezzy, Jezzy, I want to tell you what happened today about Elijah. He killed all you prophets. Well, she gets really mad and put off by it, so she sends a messenger to Elijah. She says, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of those dead prophets of Baal. Now, as a reader, I'm thinking, 
Ah, this is going to be good. Elijah's already faced tougher enemies than her and wiped them off with a wave of his hand. And what's more important, this isn't even a real problem. When Jezebel says, if by this time tomorrow I don't take your life, it's what we call a threat formula. She wasn't being literal. If she was, then she could have had her soldiers arrest him on the spot. But Elijah is now a national hero, and she knows it. So this is just intimidation language, like, you keep this up, you'll hear from my lawyers, that kind of a thing. And what's more, this is good, folks. I'm not wearing a little boutonniere and have a pretty little message. This is real-life stuff, dirty, nasty stuff, right? So what's more, Elijah knows the power of God. If you ever read the Bible real close, an Old Testament scholar named Dave Hubbard He talks about this. He says, miracles in the Bible are not evenly distributed. They cluster in three main areas for three reasons. First is the time of Moses when God's people are being formed with the 10 plagues and the sea opening up and you know all the stuff that happened. Another, of course, is the time of Jesus in the formation of the early church. The third time is this season of Elijah and his protege, Elisha, when Israel is being prophetically challenged to come out of idolatry and live in the worship and justice and holiness of the one triune God. So Elijah is the man who calls down fire from heaven, prays away the drought, outruns chariots. He's fed by the ravens, by God. He raises the dead. He makes kings. He breaks kings. So if we were standing there and Elijah's being threatened by Jezebel, we'd say, Jezebel, Sweetheart, you have sadly underestimated this man. If you think you can intimidate him with your puny, hollow little threat, right, Elijah? Elijah? Anybody seen Elijah? No. (coughs) Nobody has because the text said he ran for his life. And we know he's a pretty fast runner too. He hits the southern border town of Beersheba, and that's where you could leave Israel kind of like when you go to the valley, the Rio Grande in Texas. <clears throat> so Elijah leaves his servant there, and he immigrates to the wilderness. Now, dismissing his servant, it's political. It's a symbolic way of leaving his job or leaving his ministry. He terminates his staff, gets rid of them. And crossing the border is symbolic of leaving the people of God whom God had called him to serve. So he goes out into the Negev Desert, no man's land, And we're told he came to a broom tree, a juniper tree. They get up to about eight feet. He sat down under it, and he prayed a great prayer of faith. He said, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I might as well be dead. Now, people who write about this read it and wonder, hey, how could this triumphant, death-defying superhero, Elijah of chapter 18, turn into a whiny, hopeless crybaby in one chapter? How could Joshua turn into a Shamua? I wonder if he was bipolar. If he were to go into a modern-day psychiatric clinic and get examined, well, they'd look for manic signs in chapter 18. Risky behavior, check. Excessive energy, check. He outran a chariot, for crying out loud. Confrontational, check. Reduce sense of fear, check. Then in chapter 19, when you look for the diagnostic criteria of depression, 
diminished interest in activity, check. Fatigue and loss of energy, check. Depressed effect, feelings of worthlessness, thoughts of suicide, check, check. Change in appetite, change in sleep habits, check, check. Now, thousands of years ago, psychiatric diagnostic categories didn't exist. And I don't mean to read them into the story. I just thought they fit. And I mention it because maybe you, maybe somebody you love suffers from some bipolar disorder, clinical levels of anxiety or depression or obsessive compulsive disorder or disassociate disorder or autism or addiction. And you could think, well, God never used me. And what I want to say is that's a lie from hell. These guys were all cracked up all through the Bible. Everybody's messed up. I don't know where we got this sterile Bible with these pure saintly people glowing in the dark, but they're not there. Only Jesus was that. So I'm saying, these people had flaws. Now you ought to feel better. There's hope for you. We're talking about hope. So the Bible is not a book about paragons of moral virtue or mental and emotional health. No, it's a book about God in the strange way God works with the strangest people. And I want to say to you this morning, if you find yourself with those kind of thoughts like Elijah, you're not alone. And you're not to live in shame. God doesn't want you to be in despair. God has a purpose for your life just like he did for Elijah, flaws and all. And I want to tell you about a few hope killers that flipped the switch for Elijah in chapter 19 and choked out his hope, at least for a little while, and how his therapist, Dr. God, helped him get through that, and maybe it'll help you help someone today as we learn to be students of hope in this season we live in. So here's number one. There's just three. I think for sure one major hope killer for Elijah was fatigue. Fatigue. Now, that doesn't sound terribly spiritual, does it? But fatigue is a hope killer. Imagine going through what this dude did in chapter 18. Now remember, he's human. He's a real guy. After confronting the whole nation of Israel in one of the boldest speeches in the Bible, taking on 450 false prophets of Baal, single-handedly, constructing an altar, butchering the bull yourself, praying down fire from heaven, lecturing a wicked king, climbing Mount Carmel, praying down rain, ending a drought, and then outrunning a horse and chariot for 15 miles, maybe he needed a break. You think so? Maybe it's a week where you had one of your children go to a wedding and you moms have worked and slaved and there's food and refreshments and there's getting this ready and getting that ready and they have the wedding on the weekend and there's in-laws there. Hey, stay home for the weekend. Rest. It's good for you. God didn't call you to burn yourself out. That's a one-off. That's not every week. That's not lazy. That's totally different. But if you are that, I'd say to you, stay home this week. Get it, get on your fluffy shoes and your little house robe and let's lounge around the house. Send, send your husband out for something to eat and bring it back. Take it. This is Bible. I don't know where we got this idea. God's going to burn me out. No, not unless you're stupid. No, he's not going to do that. Going to tear up my family. No, he's not going to do that. Those are bad choices you're making. That's not God. So I think this guy needed a breather. I kind of have a feeling like this guy's adrenaline level must have been off the charts. 
because he's not Superman. James tells us he was a man just like us. He was just a guy. So you're just a guy, just a man, just a woman. We're just ordinary people. And one of the most amazing aspects of this amazing story is Elijah pours out this amazing prayer. I've had enough. I'm no good. Take me now. And God doesn't even bother to answer him. Look at what God does. Then he lays down under this juniper tree and fell asleep. And an angel comes and touches him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there was a cake right by his head. If you've ever heard of angel food cake, that's where it started, <laughs> literally. That was angel food cake. In fact, Elijah took another nap, and the angel gave him a second cake. Now, theological scholar Joey Clarkson puts it like this. Never forget in the Bible, Elijah was like, God, I'm so mad, I want to die. And God's response was, here's some food, take a nap. So Elijah slept and ate and slept and ate and decided, well, maybe things are not so bad. And that'll work for you. See, the moral of the story is never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack, for things are not what they seem. Elijah was worn out, burned out, tired, that's all, and then your brain goes goofy. And then everybody's against you, and you don't see any hope any way through. You ever get tired? It's amazing. I mean, a couple of years ago, uh, maybe two, I think, tons and tons of people had never heard of Zoom. Now, one of the hottest topics going is called Zoom fatigue. They just had an article in Harvard Business Review and National Geographic. And it turns out that if you stare at another person minute by minute, hour by hour, well, we're kind of not used to that, right? Plus, you have to look at your own self in a little square box, and it turns out your own self is a lot more wrinkled and looks a lot worse than you thought you would. So we get exhausted sitting in a chair looking at a screen. Now, I understand Elijah's not you. He doesn't have your stamina, your drive, your ability to thrive on junk food and go without regular sleep and stay up all night watching whatever. No, Elijah was just a world-changing, king-challenging, nation-forming, history-altering prophet. I know he's not up to your speed. I get it. I get it. But you might consider this. You will never reach consistent spiritual renewal in a state of perpetual physical exhaustion. One more time. You will never, never reach consistent spiritual renewal in a state of perpetual physical exhaustion. See, you are inhabitant of your life. You're at the mercy of your body. So what should I do? Well, you could rest properly. You could sleep. You could eat healthy. You could cut down on caffeine or alcohol if they're getting in your way. You could take long walks, maybe with a friend, maybe your spouse, maybe even with our friend Jesus and have a little talk with Jesus in that walk. Did you ever notice this? Sometimes the difference between the confident hope of Joshua and the defeated spirit of Shemua is just a good night's sleep. 
Sometimes, based on the Bible, the most spiritual thing you can do under that stress, take a nap. But there's another hope killer. Fatigue, that's one. Number two, isolation. Isolation. See, when God finally does speak to Elijah after some time and the nap snack thing, he asked Elijah a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? You could underline the word here if you're following in your Bible. It's a question of physical geographic location. Elijah, your calling is there in Israel. Your mission is there, my brother. Why are you here? It's also a question of spiritual condition. How did I get here? How did I end up like this? How did the confident, faith-filled prophet of God become a thumb-sucking, despairing, hopeless, suicidal runaway? How did I make that jump? See, God knows every single one of us asked that question at some point in our lives. We all end up sitting under some broom tree. We all end up in the desert asking, how did I get here? Yeah. Elijah responds, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, Lord. They've turned, torn, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I've been very zealous, Lord. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. Look how I'm being treated. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'll go eat worms. Knock it off. The sky is not falling, Sparky. Chicken little. No. I, I don't know about you, but one of the things I'm discovering in our culture today is that people have a tremendous capacity for self-pity. Self-pity is not good, right? It's almost a spiritual gift to some people. It's such a miserable experience. Somebody called it cold comfort. That is a good name, cold comfort. That's why we go to it. We like it, but it's cold comfort, and it breeds, grows in isolation. It distorts my perspective to make life look more hopeless to me. So that's why God doesn't want you alone, isolated. He sets the loner, the solitary, in families. Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not easily uh, broken. God never wanted you to be alone. That isn't even biblical. And it, it, it's wrong to isolate because you start feeling self-pity. Nobody loves me. It's worse than I. Pretty soon, you just talked yourself into near death, and none of it's true. And I'm going to tell you, if you're a hope bringer, we'll talk about a little gal named Ruth next week who brought hope to a hopeless mother-in-law. You need to bring some hope to these kind of people. Get them out of the house, take them for lunch, start talking with them, and get them into a real-life perspective. It's not as bad as you think. It has a shelf life. This will end. God said, that which I've begun in you, I'll perform it to the day of Jesus. Come on, buckle up, buckle up, encourage. But don't let somebody isolate. When a kid isolates in a room and they never come out and they don't have any friends, you got a walking time bomb there. They'll walk into a school with a gun, they'll do something silly, or they will, uh, tragic, or they will commit suicide, some terrible thing. And you notice all they did was isolate. So when you get alone, then your little mind starts doing dumb things, telling you all kind of lies that aren't true. There is always hope. There is always a way through. It's kind of fascinating that in chapter 18, <coughs> excuse me, Elijah is aware that there are other scores of faithful prophets who love and serve the God of Israel, 
and their lives are at risk at the moment. And now one chapter later, he forgets all about them. He's just focused on himself. I'm alone. Nobody loves me. Nobody votes my way. I alone can save America. And God's response is so gracious. He said, get up, go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Oh, this should be good. And this is given to Elijah and all the elements associated in the Bible with what's called a theophany. A theophany is the tangible manifest presence of God, the glory of God. So he comes by this prophet in a mighty wind, but he wasn't in it. And then a great earthquake, and the Lord wasn't in it. And a powerful fire, but God wasn't in it. And then, apparently, it's very hard to translate in the original Hebrew, a still, small voice. Sometimes you just have to get quiet and hear God. I don't hear him too loud screaming and shouting, but if I get alone, I've been on an airplane sipping a coffee late at night, just listening to the hum of the engines, just me and my, my thoughts. That's amazing. You can have a little conversation with the Lord right there. He'll talk to you. But I've never been screaming when he was talking to me, you know. Just a still, small, a gentle breeze. So maybe even silence for a moment. Well, then God asked him exactly the same question. After all that, how'd you like a piece of that for your morning? Like, well, I saw an earthquake, a fire, a whirlwind, and the Lord spoke to me out of blah, blah, blah. And then God says to him, okay, what are you doing here, Elijah? Asked him again. <coughs> and we wait to see how would Elijah have changed, moved, challenged, inspired, or been encouraged by witnessing the actual presence of God. How will it affect him? How different will his response be now from the verse 10? So he speaks. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The dude hadn't changed at all. This is precisely the same speech word for word. This is a very powerful spiritual experience, a manifestation of God, and it was apparently wasted on this man. But God's not done. So God tells Elijah that there are thousands of others ready to stand with him. He says, Elijah, you're part of a much larger community. Things are not the way they seem, old boy, and they're going to encourage and inspire you. Elijah, you're going to be a model of hope. They're going to be a model of hope for you. So God has Elijah go and anoint another man named Elisha, who's going to become his student, his protege, his partner, and more than that, his friend, and almost like a father to Elisha. In fact, Elisha calls him, Elijah, my father. So it's funny. He's in isolation under a broom tree. I only I am left. And God says, Oh, knock it off, Sparky. I got thousands down there that haven't worshipped Baal. You have no idea what's in this country. It is not lost. It, this earth belongs to the Lord and the fullness of it. The Democrats don't get it. The Republicans don't get it. And the devil doesn't get it. God gets it. And God will have the last word. So there's nothing beyond his control. And he's got people scattered in all kinds of places you wouldn't imagine just like Elijah didn't imagine. 
<coughs> and that's what happens when you isolate. You get to talk into yourself and believe in your own lie and thinking I'm the only one. And God says, no, you're not. My church is a lot bigger than you. You're not so alone, Elisha, Elijah. Excuse me. Your enemy is not so strong. Israel is not so faithless. God is not so distant. And it turns out that hope is not a solo activity. It's a team sport. Isolation diminishes hope. Connections multiply hope. Get around hopeful people and you feel like, I'm going to make it another day. That's part of why we want everybody at our church, Summit Church, everybody everywhere to be in a small group. And one of the things I love about this season is that thanks to God and Zoom, anybody anywhere can be part of a group. You got a computer, iPad, a smartphone, you can be in a group. Small groups keep us from isolation, and they remind us God is at work. Small groups help us find, follow Jesus in our ordinary lives so that Christ can be formed in us. And every time Elijah would look at Elisha, he would be reminded God's work is going to go on. My efforts are not in vain. There is hope. So what do you hope for? What do you hope for as a dad, a husband, a wife? What do I hope for uh, as a minister? What are your spiritual hopes? What are your financial hopes? What are your vocational hopes? All of them. What are you hoping for? See, what are your hopes in this season, 2023? And let me help each other. Let's help each other keep hope alive. I've had a couple of friends go way down. I mean, rock bottom. And I just, man, I got on the phone. I did texting. Then I went by and I says, no, we're going out to lunch. Get out of that house. You are not going to sit there. I'm going to pray over you too. You've had this illness and there hasn't been any turnaround and being alone and not seeing any results. You start thinking, it's not going to work. I'm not going to get well. I'm sick. God doesn't love me. Here you go. None of it's true. They're up walking today. Profitable. But somebody had to bring them some hope. And so if you see somebody in the ditch, for God's sake, reach down, pitch a little hope towards them. Hey, it's not as bad as you think. It's going to be okay. Come on with me. Be a hopeful person. Be a hope bringer like Ruth was to Naomi. We'll look at that next week. And last one, number three. This is the last great hope killer. Worry. Worry. Fatigue for sure. Isolation for sure. It's really hard to worry and be hopeful. This is actually the trigger for loss of hope in this story with Elijah. He's afraid. He ran for his life. Now, I got good news and bad news on this. The good news is hope can exist right alongside of worry. The bad news is hope only exists alongside of worry. <laughs> Sometimes people think hope can be used to get me free from worry, to avoid worry, to escape worry, so that I can finally have a worry-free, pleasant little life. Nope, I'm sorry. It actually works the other way. Louis Schmeeds writes of a study on World War II pilots, bomber pilots, and how they coped with fear. And the study said many of them overcame their fear of being killed in combat by giving up on hope. They simply believed one of these times they're, gonna, they're going out on the mission and they're not going to come back. They're going to die. My dad, who flew B-24 bombers on D-Day into Germany, said out of every four bombers that went out on the day, only one came back. So they, were, they decided there's no hope for me, so they got over their fear by just assuming I'm going to die on this mission. But something strange happened. When they only had a couple of missions left, 
before being shipped home. When they got almost to the finish line, they started believing, I might actually make it. And they started caring. They hoped. But when they started hoping again, they started worrying again. Hope is not fatalism, but what we hope for we do not yet have. That means hope and worry are siblings. Isn't that great news? See, unbelievers don't have to doubt. Believers doubt precisely because we live by faith. And as long as we live by faith and hope, we will know doubt and fear. As long as you have something to hope for, you will have something to be concerned about. Isn't that good news? But it's okay because we live in the real world and because our hope is not in hope. Our hope is in God. Our hope is not that we're strong, vital, hopeful people. Our hope is that God is a strong, good God. So God tells Elijah, take action. Go back the way you came. I hope you had a nice trip, Elijah. I hope the nap and the snack were real good. I hope you enjoyed the show up on the mountain. Go back the way you came. Get back into your assignment, in other words. So God gives Elijah a new assignment, gives him leaders to anoint, gives him judgment to pronounce, gives him colleagues to recognize. And what's interesting in all of this is the writer tells us absolutely nothing about how Elijah feels about it. We got an earful from him earlier. His escape, his aloneness, his feelings of failure, his self-pity, his desire to die, and his feelings that he's the only one faithful to God. So God gives him rest and food and quiet and more than a month of recovery and a divine revelation and probing questions and a new direction. Is Elijah all charged up now? Is he confident? Is he hopeful? Is he afraid? The Bible doesn't say. All we know is that he did what God asked him to do. And I'll tell you my guess. My guess is for the remainder of Elijah's life, he had to deal with them both. He had to choose hope and manage fear. Choose hope, manage fear, just like you. I'm too old to get married. Nobody going to marry me. Hope, manage the fear. Yeah, come on. See, what Elijah did do was obey God. That's what he did do. And what he did do is go back down the mountain and take courageous action. And that's all God's going to ask you to do. See, what did he do was to say, I guess I won't just retire in the desert where things will be pleasant. I guess I won't just withdraw up to the mountain and make my life manageable. Action is a very powerful thing. It's much easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. See, when you act like a hopeful, courageous, expectant person, pretty soon you start feeling more hope and feeling more courage and feeling more expectancy. I want to see this through. If you just stay up on the mountain waiting for a feeling to strike you before you leave, you may never leave. So what would you, Elijah, do today if you were feeling great hope in God? Would you pray big, bold prayers? Would you give generous gifts Would you take the initiative to reach out to friends? Would you decide to start learning a new skill? Would you commit to volunteer in some helpful way, like we need men? Friday, we got four signed up. We need men to help us out two hours with all of our ladies for the night. Would you do that? You could do it. You got some hope in you? Willing to step out courageously and serve a little bit? Some helpful way Perhaps you could think to cheer on a coworker. 
Would you confess to a hidden sin or an addiction to a trusted friend and ask God for healing? We'll do it. Stop waiting to feel hope and start acting in hope because God says my plans for you are good, not evil, to give you a hope and a future. God is for you on your stinkingest day. For life is not an empty dream and things are not the way they seem. If you're not quite sure what to do this week, have a nap, eat a snack, and I'll see you next week. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. You can hear more messages by visiting summitsa.com.